You've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and supporting the Black Man with a Gun Show. This week, episode number 468. I realized that life without left-handed people wouldn't be right. We're going to talk about being left-handed and shooting, shooting with your non-dominant hand. We got Rick Ector. I got an artist, a knife maker, a blade smith by the name of Clarence Jackson that I want to introduce to you. And MJ is going to talk about all this and more coming up next. Welcome to the Black Man with a Gun Show, produced by the Blanchard Media Group, sponsored by Crossbreed Holsters and amazing patrons like you. To you on a dusty road, good loving, I got a truckload, and when you get it, you got something, so don't worry, cause I'm coming, I'm a soul man. I'm a soul man. I'm a soul man. I'm a soul man. This program has been providing information, inspiration, entertainment since 2007. And I'm your host, Reverend Ken Blanchard. And after John Wayne leads us in the Pledge of Allegiance, we're going to continue with the Black Man with a Gun Show. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. How you doing this week? It's a pleasure to have you on the show with me one more time. My email is blackmanwithagun at gmail.com. Feel free to send me an email. Actually, I would love to hear from you. So if you haven't spoken to me, if we haven't met, please send me an email. Just like that. At the time of this broadcast is April 1st. So today is April Fool's Day. Believe nothing and trust no one. Just like any other day. Got my dog here in the studio with me. I made the mistake of Showing her an abundance of affection and loving her up and rubbing her and hugging her and now she won't leave my side. And that's a good thing. I talked to my mother earlier and uh, she is not fine, but she's doing okay. She is uh, reminiscing on stuff and remembering better times when we had a good conversation. It seems like um, my mother and I are pretty close. Uh, we got the same stuff. Going on, I got most of her traits, I think. I'm definitely a mama's boy. In fact, uh, so much so, it's kind of embarrassing, actually, how much stuff we agree with. But uh, she's doing better, just not great. And she just gave her car away since she no longer should be driving. And that's like a, a big deal when you're an older person. You can see your... Um, freedom and your mobility slowly slipping away. And as I look at her, I see myself too, just 21 years younger. Makes you think about stuff. About life, about death, about the situation the world is in right now. 
and makes me glad I got you, my friend. I have created another podcast, and I kind of merged everything else I was doing, and I put it all into one. So everything that's not involved with this one is on the other one. It's called The Ken Blanchard Show, and you might want to take a listen to it. And you can find it on iTunes as well, or you can go to KenBlanchard.com, and you'll find it there. The older I get, the more I appreciate art and artists. I understand the value about those who are trying to be creative. I understand how creative people sometimes can spin our wheels and we can't do what we love to do. Most of the time, it's the life that gets in the way. We have to make a living, you know. And we also have to be good stewards of what we are blessed with. So one of the things I want to do is start to introduce people that are a blessing to me, are worthy of being shared. And I hope to introduce this new guy to you right now. His name is Clarence Jackson from Florida, and he's a bladesmith and a jewelry maker. Not a gun guy, but a knife guy. I have the honor of having a new friend. His name is Clarence Jackson. He is a knife maker. He is an artist. Um, He designs jewelry. Um, He is a gifted person. And Mr. Jackson, welcome to the Black Man with a Gun Show. Hey, thanks for having me. I have never met a bladesmith before, a knife maker, uh, a person who can forge steel. There's been quite a few things I wish I could have done. I, I see them on, in movies. I go, man, that would be a cool knife. But I never thought I could get somebody to actually make one just like that or know how to heat the fire up and turn the steel. And I always thought blacksmiths were like the macho dudes, like Vulcans, man. They like hitting on anvils and, and slamming steel. That was just some <laughs> manly stuff, dude. So, so thanks, for, man, for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. How'd you how'd you get into this? I don't know if I fit the role, but uh, <laughs> try to live up to it. How'd you get in this business? So, uh, I, you know, I went to art school, and um, I had the uh, opportunity to um, learn from a from a, a metal uh, um, a sculptor who uh, took me on and said he'd teach me how to you know make a forge and and I uh, let me get started. Uh, he passed away. Um, and I think they, the department kind of took pity on me and let me continue um, making knives as art objects uh, and blacksmithing and making all kind of stuff in the program. And uh, this was at uh, Florida State University. And um, I continued with it after school. Uh, I met the Florida Artist Blacksmith Association, Southern Bladesmiths, a lot of guys there. I uh, got to spend a lot of time with those smiths. Uh, one of the guys, Edgar Chatton, took me on, let me spend about um, like about six months with him, uh, a couple of days every week learning, and I just kind of tried to hone my craft um, from there. I uh, spent some time with the American Bladesmith Society, took their, their beginning knife-making course, two weeks, uh, 40 hours, I think, um, and uh, still learning. Yeah. I saw one of your knives on Facebook, and I thought, Wow, that's a homemade job. That's that looks like store bought. I mean, it just the quality was good from just the picture. So I was just amazed. And I had to, I had to reach out to you, dude. 
Okay. Yeah, it's the you know that's the that's the amazing like the American Bladesmith uh, Society is an amazing um, uh, group of people, and my my knife making comes from uh, kind of two schools. You know, uh, one group of guys that you know they they'll make my beautiful beautiful work, uh, great work out of files and and old uh, reclaimed repurposed steel that they know are quality blade steel, so spring steel uh, files, uh, you know. Um, uh, a variety of things. I got to, you know, making some knives out of wrenches that people like. Um, and then the blade, the American Bladesman Society, they're making like these pristine, beautiful blades that look like it was made by a computer, but it's made by a person, which is phenomenal. So I kind of try to do work towards both those ends. And uh, those are my aspirations. Um, and uh, kind of, you know, where I'm headed. Nice. Um so that's great to say that. <laughs> so repurposed steel, like what are we talking? We're talking uh, lawnmower blades. Um, you said springs on cars. Yeah, uh, tractor springs. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, those leaf uh, uh, Leaf spring on on old uh, vehicles. Uh, files, um, uh, like the big, like the big old uh, metal files. Um, Usually you're looking for stuff made in the U.S. You're looking for stuff older, and I've, I'm kind of in a smaller town, uh, Tallahassee, Florida, so you can find a lot of older stuff. Um, uh, so those are those are some of the steels that we'll work with. So it being rusty and stuff, that doesn't really matter. No, 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 no. <laughs> it doesn't matter. We, we've got different techniques for for uh, dealing with all that, and um, usually when you heat it up. Uh, the rust goes to black and either is the scale and it kind of flakes off. Oh, wow. um, and it certainly will come off once you've uh, taken it through the, the process that you're, that you're, uh, you know, going through. So yeah, it's not a big issue. I'm about, I'm about to become a scavenger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's, yeah, I spend a lot of time at the flea market and everywhere where I can find steel. <laughs> like, I know right I mean, now in the city, ain't nobody paying attention to that. Yeah, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. But there's that's kind of like good and bad. I mean, for a person that's looking for stuff, you can find stuff. Like um, a while back, I was trying to figure out. You know, you know, I understand good knives, but where are the quality um, axes? And a buddy of mine, who you know, thinks a lot about these uh, subjects, gun guy, uh, SHF guy, all this. Um, he was telling me about Wetterlings and Gransford's, uh Brooks and all these. And he was like, you know, when I looked them up, they're all super expensive. But apparently uh, there are some guys that know all about uh, how to repurpose an old axe head and find in the old ones. And you can find them for like $6, $10, $15, $20. Um, and if you take some time and learn, you can go, even if you're just doing it with a file or, or you know, you get some skill with a power tool, you can go reshape, uh, go find old axe heads and work on those. So I've been doing a lot of that uh, too, and that's I love it, you know. And it's cheap; it just takes time. Wow, that's too cool. You can do a lot with stuff that people throw away. People go and throw away grandpa stuff, <laughs> especially if you go out to the rural areas where uh-huh. people are are putting up flea market. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can you can go and fit yourself out pretty good. Tell me about the jewelry that you make. Well, I um, 
I, at some point, you know, being a Smith, I think I was, I was thinking, you know, I, I, I didn't have a lot of money. Uh, I never had a lot of a whole bunch of money. Um, but I wanted to make stuff for my wife. And so I just started playing around and, you know, she loved some of the stuff and her friends uh, really liked the stuff. And so I said, well, let's see if there's any money in it. And, uh, I just kept going because <laughs> they kept buying. So I, I make uh, copper jewelry, um, hand forged. Um, a lot of it, you know, I forge off silver. Um, I've worked with a material called gold filled. Uh, I can work with gold. Um, not a lot of soldering, uh, mostly forged shapes, forged wire, forged plate. And, uh, the shapes are often African or ethnic inspired, um, which I think is positive uh, because it, it sends a um, good message uh, to uh, the black women uh, that will purchase it a lot. But I sell to everyone and everyone loves it. And, I, you know, the cool thing is some of those shapes are like universal. So I get people who aren't, you know, uh, I get people from, you know, all backgrounds and they love it, you know, for their own reason, you know, Um and that's really an awesome thing to be able to do. It's like a, you're going into your culture, but it's also the unifying element that connects with everybody. So that's kind of neat. Shoot, man, that's that's my show right there in a nutshell. Um, trying to be unified. All right. <laughs> so that's that's cool. Survival knives. That's kind of a hot thing right now, right? Yeah, yeah, it seems to be. Mm-hmm. Do you make any? Yeah, that that's kind of that's one of the main things that I, I that I think about. Um, you know, my stuff was practical. I, I think I first wanted to make knives out of because they had beautiful knives that I couldn't buy because they were too expensive <laughs> at the guild meetings. Yeah. Or uh, no, I wanted I wanted them. So um, you know, you're talking about a knife that you're going to go um, if you're in a survival situation or if you're prepping or practicing for a survival situation, uh, you're going to want to take this knife out in the woods and have it not break on you. Um, so often people are using it to baton, you know, taking it with, you know, another piece of wood and kind of beating it through uh, a piece of wood, uh, yeah. which means that that knife has got to be flexible enough uh, um, so that if you hit it on the spine, it's not going to, you know, break it. Okay. Um, you want it to chop, which means that your temper is going to have to be proper so that, you know, it'll be sharp and hold an edge, but it could be too brittle. Um, so I recently, um, realized that I was making one of the, one of the knives, I, I, I realized that, um, it was real good for certain things. I've batoned all year. You know, I, I had one that was my test piece and the test piece finally, finally, I uh, broke and it was, uh, it was due to, um, chopping a real hard substance. So now I have more insight about how to, how to, you know, temper it properly for, for chopping. Um, and, uh, there's some other little things in there about, you know, making a survival knife, you know, the shape is important. Um, obviously it's not double-sided, um, you know, basically a knife that you're going to use for woodworking, feather sticking, building shelters primarily, uh, maybe, maybe theoretically some defense, but mostly working with wood and building shelters. So I make, uh, one, I make, I make a bushcraft knife. Uh, I make a couple and, and I can make a variety of different bushcraft knives. Not a, not a thing. So. All right, cool. cool, man. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty, uh, 
I'm interested in that. <laughs> I like okay. it. <laughs> yeah, so so are we actually. So how would you okay, take cool. how long would it take you to repurpose something to make it into a survival knife usually? So uh that's an interesting question you ask. Repurposing a knife for a survival situation is a little bit different to me than making a bushcraft knife. Uh because um my training goes use the best steel available if it's going to be something that you want to be bombproof, bulletproof, it's not going to fail on you. So uh, I'll get steel, uh, blade steel that I know, okay, this holds up under these temperatures, et cetera. This is how exactly what you do to it. Um, and so, you know, that, you know, once I have the steel and work on it, it given my job today, I, I usually, I like to ask for like a month before I can get something, get something out. Cause I'll have multiple orders going on it at once. Uh, repurposing though, it to me is kind of like the ultimate question because even if you have a knife, you lose it, if you, whatever, in, in a situation where, you know, uh, the stuff is at the fan, um, being able to take steel that you find in your environment and make a knife, uh, is still valuable and important. And, um, why I would promote anybody to get into smithing a little bit, uh, not just rely on the, the, the bladesmith to provide you one or two or three or 10, you know. Um, that though can be done more quickly because you're not, you're not doing it just to be pretty. You're, you're doing it to make an effective tool. So that could be done, you know, in a couple of days. Oh, okay. The repurposing, you know. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Well, thank you, man. You, you've uh, educated me a little bit and now I got my mind whirling. So I hope to <laughs> reach out to you again and, uh, going to show some of your stuff on the website. And if hopefully if anybody's interested, okay. They will contact you through there. Awesome. That'd be excellent. All right, man. I look forward to talking to That'd you again in the future. And we're going to stay right. in touch because uh, you're now my knife guy. I always wanted a knife guy. Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, hey, cool. That's awesome. All right, yeah. clients. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. Appreciate you, bro. Yeah, no problem. Appreciate you. This portion of the show is sponsored by CrossbreedHolsters.com. Crossbreed Holsters has gained national recognition as a maker of the best and most functional concealment holsters available on the market today. Each holster is handcrafted to ensure your firearm is safe and secure while carrying, combined with the best customer service in the industry. Visit CrossbreedHolsters.com. Cannot forget Crossbreed Holsters. They've been so good to a brother. And they've been good to everybody who supported me and those who have actually took the plunge and checked it out. They got some new belts, some new holsters, new rigs. Check out CrossbreedHolsters.com when you get a chance. You won't be disappointed. Hey, last week I got, uh, I got into it with some religious stuff and I got a few points wrong. But luckily I had my friend Jeff to straighten me out. And he commented, um, he said, uh, just a couple of comments on your Christian episode. I hope you had a very good, happy Easter. We had a great one with our family. I wanted to mention it wasn't actually Passover this week. Passover is calculated differently than how Latin Rite Catholics, which you commonly hear referred to as Roman Catholics, and most Protestants calculate Easter. Also, Easter Rite Catholics did not celebrate Easter this week, nor did the Orthodox. They will celebrate it later than us. Easter is defined as the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox, but Latin Rite Catholics use the Gregorian calendar. 
The Eastern Catholics and Orthodox still use the Julian calendar, so March 21st on the Julian calendar is April 3rd on the Gregorian calendar. He says, I believe the Eastern Rite churches will celebrate Easter on May 1st this year. Passover itself is calculated differently too, so I believe that that will be after Easter for us this year. Isn't that something? And he also um, gave me some stuff about uh, the Byzantine Rite and Eastern churches and Orthodox stuff and Christianity. It was kind of cool. So thank you, Jeff, man. Appreciate that. No, Mike Woodland's going to school us on calling a shot. Thank you, Ken. And welcome to another tip segment. I am Michael Woodland of m-wtactical.com. And today we're going to discuss calling your shots. Calling your shots can be defined as mentally identifying the exact location of the sight picture the moment the firearm is fired. It is a skill that takes many hours of understanding, but the finished result can lead to faster times on a trigger. Think about it. Have you ever seen someone or experienced what came across as being too long to get the shot off? Part of the reason is that the beginner takes more time to ensure everything is perfect with their understanding before pulling the trigger. There is nothing wrong with that. You just have to understand what you are seeking to acquire from your training. Calling my shots was something that took me a long time to do, like a year and a half. In my opinion, with my job in the military and the mission we had to accomplish, calling our shots were not one of the tasks on the training calendar, but I wish that would have been taught to me in my earlier years in the military. This technique was learned with a lot of frustration. If you know anyone who shoots regularly, good enough is not good enough. Then again, this valuable technique has proved to be an asset to me by taking first place in the boat division of the United States Army Marksmanship Long Range Championship in 2014. How do you go about calling your shots? There are many ways you can practice this technique. When you are dry firing, you are essentially practicing calling your shots, but your focus is either more on the trigger pull or concentration on the front sight. Do you see how the training is overlapping? It is easier to learn this technique with some form of feedback, either from a training aid or actual bullets on target. If you use the CERT training handgun that we talked about last week, the laser feedback is good for calling your shots. For this next explanation, I will discuss with the handgun. When calling your shots with the handgun, we need to see the initial lift from the recoil. If done correctly with previously talked about fundamentals, this will give you the exact location on target. A quick tip for calling your shots. The whole process occurs in a split second. You will need to ensure you are not flinching or closing your eyes when you break the shot. Calling your shots are important with the handgun, AR rifle, and the long-range rifles that can produce results, but more so for ranges 600 yards or further. A lot of shooters do not practice calling their shots out past 600 yards. Now, remember, calling your shot is mentally identifying the exact location of the sight picture the moment the firearm is fired. Don't think you will call every shot perfectly. A lot of time, overconfidence or a wrong sight picture could be the result of the missed call. Then again, shooting is the evolution of what you put in with training. Tune in next week as we tackle another area of marksmanship for another tip segment. Visit us on Facebook by searching for M-W Tactical in the search bar on Twitter, at MJ Woodland and Instagram screen name MJ Woodland. 
Let us know what questions you may have. If you would like for me to come out to your area and teach the techniques I talk about on this show, visit us at m-wtactical.com and look at our course descriptions and send us a note from the Contact Us page or call me at 803-250-1256 and tell me what you are seeking to do and let's get you and your group trained. Until next week, keep shooting, keep practicing, and have fun. Back to you, Ken. Do you carry a concealed firearm for self-defense? Are you prepared to survive prosecution by the criminal justice system? Join the Armed Citizen Legal Defense Network and find out how. You'll get legal help plus a series of educational DVDs and a 235-page book to keep you informed. For details, go to armedcitizensnetwork.org. That's armedcitizensnetwork.org. Hey, my friend Rob Morris has a new podcast. It's called Self-Defense Gun Stories. You can find it at selfdefensegunstories.com. He's up to episode number seven, and I believe my brother David Cole was on episode number six. Check him out at Self-Defense Gun Stories Podcast. And my dog is sleeping like a, like a puppy. Poor old girl. Hey, did you know that there is 10% of the population are left-handed? And that there's been a bias against left-handed people and children since forever. A Zulu child who ate his porridge with his left hand could expect to have that hand burned in the hot porridge as a lesson. Even in 20th century Britain, children could expect to have their left hand tied down to make them use their right one. British child psychologists said that children that used their left hand were simply demonstrating and developing a defiant personality that needed to be corrected as soon as possible. Four out of the last seventh presidents have been left-handed. Let me tell you what happened to me. When I was a kid, I came from a very athletic family. Everybody did something in sports. My mother was a star basketball player in high school. My natural father was a baseball player, almost made it to pros before Vietnam. My stepfather was just a jack of all trades. He didn't really play sports that I could see. But in his teaching of me to play sports, he used to throw the ball as hard as he could into my glove and he used to like set fire to my hand. And then I'd try to throw it and of course it would suck. Playing football, same thing. He would hurl the football, perfect spiral into my chest, catch it or get crushed, right? All in the stuff to make me tough. I never liked sports because of that. I don't know if that was the reason, but I think it is. So slowly, I I played basketball. I didn't make the team. I only team that I made was the wrestling team. But then school suffered, so I had to quit. But baseball and basketball and football, I sucked at it. Went into the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I actually got there when I was 18 and learned that everything that I learned away from home, I did it as a left-handed person. The light bulb came on that the reason I couldn't catch or couldn't throw was because I was really born left-handed. I am left-eyed dominant. 
everything that I've done as an adult, I can do left-handed. So I box left-handed. I can shoot pool left-handed. I can eat left-handed. I can, I can even write left-handed. Um, but I've been practicing right-handed all my life so that I wouldn't be strange. I didn't know, though, that uh, being left-handed wasn't such a bad deal, actually. Scientists aren't actually sure why some people are left-handed, but they know that genes are responsible for 25% of the time, they say. Left-handedness does tend to run in families, he says, but noticeably less than other inherited traits like height or intelligence. In fact, identical twins who share the same genes can sometimes have different dominant hands. And since my family is full of twins, who knows, maybe I was one at one time. Left-handed shooters and those who have to shoot with their non-dominant hand or weak hand. I think the PC term these days is non-dominant shooting hand because you don't want any of your hands to be considered weak. Is the subject of this week's show. Aside from my sad story, I survived it. It's okay. I am now called an ambidextrous shooter. I still use my left eye. Mostly. But I learned that you can also shoot with both eyes open. And that's almost preferable if you're hunting and shooting multiple targets. But my friend Rick Ector from Legally Armed in Detroit is going to take us through some of the finer points of dealing with that left hand, that weaker hand, that dominant, cross-dominant, and all that good stuff. Next. Rick Ector, welcome back to the show, brother. Hey, Ken. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on once again. The question this week is for those who don't shoot with their dominant hand or the weak hand shooting, do you have a tip for us to, for those who um, might want to get a little bit better in shooting with their non-dominant hand? You know, you know uh, non-dominant hand shooting, you know, is... Uh, uh, always, you know, a topic that uh, is, is near and dear to my heart because I'm one of those natural uh, left-handed shooters, you know. And, uh, you know, and, and by having to train people who are, of course, in most cases right-handed, you know, then I, you know, over the course of the years of training, others have adopted the ability to shoot either hand. I think uh, what's important is that you impress upon people, you know, the need to train uh, with their left hand just in case, you know, they're uh, incapacitated or maybe they lose uh, the ability to uh, use their strong hand. Maybe for whatever reason they need to use their strong hand to free themselves or to get some distance between, you know, any assailant that's uh, uh, trying to uh, target them. Uh, they're really, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uncomfortable for a lot of people, you know, shooting with their offhand or their weak hand, you know, it just feels awkward and weird. And, uh, I tell people, you know what, go with it, you know, same fundamentals that, as if you were shooting, uh, with your right hand, you know, and, and I come into a lot of different situations in which, People are normally right-handed, 
but then they're cross-eyed dominant. You know, they're those interesting individuals whose strongest eye is on their left side. And of course they're shooting with their right hand. So I always leave with them, you know, the tip that they should explore uh, shooting with their opposite hand, which corresponds with their dominant eye. And of course there are some situations I've come into where uh, they uh, have had a, a disability of some sort involving uh, their forefinger, the trigger finger on their dominant hand. And of course, uh, there's nothing to prevent them from shooting, but it makes the orientation, you know, of the gun in their actual hand, you know, a little difficult because obviously the orientation of the gun within the mouth of their hand as they're trying to position, you know, their trigger finger to shoot, you know, if obviously if they're missing a segment off that finger, it's going to cause some issues. So, there are definitely uh, specific circumstances under which people want to shoot with the weekend. Uh, is anything different? No, uh, there really isn't any difference per se, uh, shooting weekended. You know, when you're talking about shooting, particularly with newbies, you're pretty much talking about a two-handed shooting position. So, you know, the thing that I found uh, most interesting to in part to new shooters is that when you're shooting with two hands, whether it's your strong side or your weak side, you know, that weak side hand that you're actually holding the firearm with is, is extremely important, you know, and if you had maybe 10 instructors in a conference room and we all were having for debate the topic of the perfect grip, you know, I think that you probably would have several different variations of how to actually grip that gun with uh, a variety of opinions of how that offhand should be positioning that shooting dominant hand, whatever side it may be. You know, I usually tell people that when you're shooting that uh, non-dominant hand, you know, first and foremost, you know, and it almost goes without saying. It's one of those things that that we pretty much assume in the training world that you actually bought the right gun for yourself. You know, if you don't buy the right firearm, it just makes everything difficult. And, and yes, there's a litany of variables that goes into that handgun buying decision. But one of the things that comes most into play is the actual size of the gun, you know, because the size impacts a lot of different variables, which includes fit. And I've seen a lot of interesting combinations of shooters out there. You know, whether you have this big, giant, six-foot-four, 300-pound guy with, like, teeny, tiny hands. And, you know, you could just imagine that he went into the gun shop and the guy behind the counter, you know, picked up a big, giant, full-framed, you know, firearm and sold it to him. But if it doesn't fit his hand right, you're going to start having a lot of issues with just having a decent grip on that firearm. You know, when you have the opposite scenario where you have uh, big hands and you have like a really small gun, that, that's also uh, a situation that's not beneficial for a person shooting, whether it's with their strong or with their weak hand. But uh, definitely I, I want to not let that point get biased, that the actual size and fit of the gun uh, should make such that that firearm is a mere extension of your hand. 
You want to make sure that that firearm in your shooting hand, that the mouth of your hand is centered along the back strap and high under the tang, right under the part of the frame that's directly, you know, under the slide. And you want to make sure that you got those good three fingers, you know, that are holding that frame and then that supporting hand where it comes together. And, and this, of course, is another tip for the newbies. You know, thumbs on the same side of the firearm. If you're not uh, positioning your, your hands on that gun such that your thumbs are not on the same side of the gun, you know, only bad things are going to happen. And there's a variety of terms to describe that scenario, and it's called slide bite, where the slide on a semi-auto comes back and leaves a set of train tracks on your thumb. Now, it's not fatal, but it's one of those things that when it happens, you're almost assured never to endure that scenario again. Thumbs on the same side. And here's where some of the variation comes in with that support hand as it's holding your dominant hand. You know, that support hand, you know, you got your thumbs on the both sides. I like to nest my thumbs uh, together along the top side of the frame. And I have my uh, other fingers tightly together under the trigger guard. And if you talk to other trainers, there's some different variations. They even want the forefinger to some extent on the nine shooting hand to actually be extended towards the forward part of the trigger guard. Or you even see some guys, there's some variation of the grip where they're so concerned with this condition called muzzle flip, where their support hand uh, is actually covering the trigger, trigger guard, which is different from me putting it under the trigger guard, but it's actually covering the trigger guard with those hands uh, under the underside of, of the barrel of the firearm, which is, you know, what some guys predict uh, will enable them to better hold and, and contain that gun. Uh, there's a lot of things that are, are truly important, and the things that I want to stress is have that firearm you know, perfectly mated and fitted with your hand. Uh, make sure that you do an analysis of what your uh, dominant eye is. Uh, get it some cross-training that way. And, of course, if you have any disabilities that would uh, preclude you from using your strong hand, obviously uh, offhand shooting would definitely be of value to you. Good stuff, man. As a, as a lefty, a southpaw, how do you handle and, and navigate having all the slide levers and all the buttons being on the left side versus the right. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I, and I've coined the term and I'm sure other people have used it. You know, if you're a left-handed shooter, I tell people, well, you need a left-handed gun. And then they look at me with this quizzical look on my face. And I say, you know what, if you're a lefty, you're going to at least need a gun that has uh, controls that are present on both sides of the gun, particularly you know, the magazine detach button. You know, if you're shooting a firearm and the magazine detach button is on the same side that you're holding the gun, you know, you can't push the button in to take the mag out once you're empty. So you have to do this awkward thing where you put the gun in the other hand while being mindful that your muzzle is pointed in a safe direction. And, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, there needs to be a more concerted effort, I guess, at point of purchase when people, you know, buy guns. And I'll say this. I'm not a firearm dealer. I've never sold a gun in my life. But, 
you know, I realize that there's a conflict of interest there, right? If a brand new handgun, prospective handgun buyer comes in, he's got a pocket full of money and he's ready to spend and he's already made his mind up as to what gun he wants without too much discussion, then I, I guess you have to uh, do what the customer wants. You know, the customer's right and you give them that firearm. But uh, I would like to think that there's a, a, a contingent of gun dealers out there that will actually spend a little few extra moments and uh, go through some things with regards to uh, what firearm would be best for that individual, particularly with fit. And, if, of course, if we're talking about a left-handed shooter, I mean, man, it it's crazy that you're a lefty buying a firearm and you don't have what they call ambidextrous magazine uh, detached buttons on that gun. So, yeah, being a lefty, you know, it it, uh, it, it makes life interesting, man. But uh, when you've been teaching and training with mostly right-handed people, I sometimes forget that I'm left-handed. <laughs> You're that good. And, man, I, I appreciate that. So talk about that cross-eyed dominance thing, being which eye is strongest and all that. Yeah, um, there's a test that uh, – you know, that we can do to determine which of your eyes are is, is the strongest eye or the one that sees better. You know, if you were to uh, imagine if you're sitting down in a room somewhere and you're looking at a wall, you're looking at a wall that's directly across from you, and maybe there's some item there that's uh, on the wall, okay? And I would ask you to take your thumb, either thumb, right or left, Hold that thumb up and block out that object or that part of the object. And then I would ask you to slowly bring your hand while keeping that object you're covering covered with your thumb and to slowly bring it back to your face, okay? And as you bring it back, you're still covering up the item that you're obscuring with your thumb and invariably your thumb is going to drift towards one eye relative to the other. And it has uh, important uh, ramifications when you're actually shooting. You know, if you're shooting, you're supposed to be focusing, you know, on your sight, your front sight in particular, once you've got sight alignment already positioned, you want to make sure that if you're a right-handed shooter, that you're looking through with your right eye and focusing on this sight with your dominant eye. Of course, we have some people who are cross-eyed dominant, and if they're, you know, a southpaw or a lefty, sometimes that seems to be the, the main case where people are cross-eyed dominant. And uh, one potential solution to that, which could build a, a long-range benefit, is to get them to switch hands shooting. But, you know, in the short term, if they're not familiar and comfortable with going with their uh, weak hand, you know, it's that, that whole a concept in psychology where you talk about the uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, where you you think that uh, some negative event is going to befell you. So what you do, you start on a subconscious and on an overt level, your actions start acting in accordance to that negative belief. And lo and behold, you make the very thing that you uh, wanted to avoid actually come true. So I would say, you know, if you're a cross-eyed dominant, I, I would I would invite and entreat you to 
give some serious exploration to switching shooting in. One, it definitely can't hurt you to be able to shoot a firearm with either hand. Uh, but two, if you're looking at long-term uh, upgrading your ability to accurately shoot a target, that is to become a better marksman, then I would definitely strongly suggest that someone give it a try. Cool, man. Cool. All right, man. Thanks so much. Hey, Tim, it's always a pleasure. Uh, anytime uh, you need me, I'll be there. I appreciate the opportunity. And one word, two syllables, shalom, baby, shalom. <laughs> All right, man. How can folks find you? Uh, I can be found uh, on that place called the Internet. You know, of course, I'm on uh, the Internet proper at LegallyArmedInDetroit.com. I can be found on Facebook, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. Just search, search for my name, Rick, R-I-C-K, last name, E-C-T-O-R. If there's a platform that matters, I'm out there on it. Would be happy to meet, join, connect, and uh, fellowship with your listeners. Outstanding. Thanks, Rick. Talk to you soon, bro. All right, Ken. Talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, we're almost down to the end. Thank you so much for listening to my show this week. I got to get ready to hop into bed, and I'm hoping that you had a good April 1st and that this weekend is a great one for you. And all next week, the beginning of April is amazing. It's got to be amazing, right? Things have got to get better. Big shout out to Rick Ector who is going to partner with me in a new project that's coming down the pike. Yeah, it's going to be all that and a bag of chips. Also, Clarence Jackson, if you're interested in having some of his work made for you, you can leave your information here with me, and I will contact him for you. I'll be putting up pictures of his knives and his work on the Black Man with the Gun site. Look for it. There'll be a page there shortly. It is some outstanding stuff. And thanks, MJ, for MJ Woodland, MJ Woodland Tactical, or MW Tactical, I'm sorry. I like to put this whole name in there. If you like what you heard, please share it with someone. Feel free to contact me. You have my information, or just go to blackmanwithagun.com. Sir Winston Churchill said, the greatest lesson in life is to know that even fools are right sometimes. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and supporting the Black Man with the Gun show. Join my friends list on the website or send me an email to blackmanwiththegun at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, have a comment, a critique, or want to reach me, my contact information is there. If there's anything I can do for you, call me. And just in case nobody has told you today, I love you. And there's not a darn thing you can do about it. What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll 
This is your friend and brother from another mother, Ken Blanchard. Shalom, baby.